You're listening to the third Changemakers podcast, brought to you by the Thomson Reuters legal team in Australia and emerging markets. Changemakers is a global Thomson Reuters initiative that brings together industry leaders committed to improving diversity in the legal profession. And we want your commitment too. Your regular host of the Changemakers podcast is Global Client Director Catherine Roberts. This special episode is being hosted by me, Shelley Mulhern, Head of Client Management, and Tim Pollard, Head of Primary Law. We're the co-chairs of Thomson Reuters Pride at Work. This month at Thomson Reuters, we are celebrating Wear It Purple Day, a day in support of LGBTIQ youth. In this special edition, we explore transgender diversity and the common law, plus the issue of health and well-being for LGBTIQ lawyers. Today, we're talking to a champion of change, Rachel Wallbank. Rachel is a lawyer with 40 years experience. She's the principal of Wallbanks, a practice based in the New South Wales Hunter region, specialising in family law and succession. Between 1999 and 2003, Rachel acted for the successful applicant in a case that made legal history for transgender people in Australia. Rachel's client was a man. Originally born female-bodied, he wanted the right to be legally married as a man to his female partner. The case had personal significance for Rachel. In the 1990s, she affirmed her female sex. Rachel's personal experiences and her unique perspective enabled her to advocate for her clients in such a way that this landmark decision became one of her career highlights. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Shelley. Rachel, let's start with that 2001 case known as Ree Kevin. Why exactly was it so important? The case recognised Kevin, who was a, a man of transsexual background, as entitled to marry as a man, even though he had been born female-bodied. And in fact, Kevin had not undergone a phalloplasty. So the previous cases that had recognised the rights of transgender people to marry in their affirmed sex had required them to, through surgery, to acquire a body that matched the conventional expectation of that conf- affirmed sex, whereas Kevin, in Kevin's case, he didn't. And so we argued from the point of view of diversity in sexual formation the fact that the law shouldn't require perfection. And what the court recognised was that uh, when you took a holistic approach to determining whether someone was male or female, uh, you looked at the way they were perceived in their community by people close to them and by people interacting with them on a casual basis uh, in their employment, etc., as well as looked at the way they had experienced themselves throughout their lives and the medical procedures they'd undertaken the court was able to form a view as to whether they were male or female. And that didn't require them to meet some standard at birth in relation to their genital formation, which was the formulation of the Corbett decision that Justice Ormrod had determined in England that had been followed uniformly right throughout the common law world in America and the United Kingdom and previous to that time in Australia. Uh, In fact, there'd been a decision concerning a a, a man who had experienced an intersex condition who'd affirmed a male sex uh, who wasn't allowed to marry in either sex following the Corbett decision. And um, in order to succeed against the Commonwealth, which was running the Corbett case against us, that we needed to actually take them on on the science. At the time, we were able to get the best experts in the world 
on difference in sexual formation and have them give evidence. And we were able to get extensive evidence from everyday people in Australia uh, who'd interacted with Kevin. And the judge was able to find that on the balance of probability, human brains did differentiate as to sex, male or female or other. And that could be different from the way a body had differentiators, the balance of the body. And so uh, really uh, what Justice Chisholm said, when, and this is still good law, that at common law in Australia, you really, when faced with a choice between male and female legal sexes and male and female common law sexes, the obligation of the law is, in fact, to place people into the legal sex into which they best fit and not exclude them from that status on the basis of their difference, which was the Corbett approach. So interestingly, too, for me, was in court arguing this case as a woman of transsexual background, I was one of us in terms of being a lawyer, but one of them in terms of being a person of difference. Once we were successful, of course, the principle of, of allowing difference within the legal system, of recognising the rights of people of difference, that that case was used to rattle the bars, if you like, of marriage rights for people who experience transsexualism, transgender, uh, throughout the common law world. It was used in Europe, in the European Court of Human Rights as a precedent, in order to influence the, the ruling requiring the United Kingdom and then Ireland to alter their laws to allow people to marry in their affirmed sex. And then it's also been used as a precedent in the United States. It's one of those examples that you can be involved in legal practice and suddenly find that what you're doing has a great deal of importance to a whole lot of people that really need help. And I think that's why a lot of us study law and enter the legal profession. And I was just very fortunate that that case came my way. And I might also add, it taught me the benefit of, of opposition. Unless the Attorney-General of the day hadn't threatened my clients with a possible prison sentence if they claimed that they were a married couple, my client as a man and his partner as his wife, if that hadn't happened, they wouldn't have come to me. And without the, the thorough arguments put forward by the Commonwealth in, in opposition to our application for a declaration of validity of marriage, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to get all that science and all that evidence together to actually illuminate this whole area. And really, even today... If you want to get a very good understanding of the science of transgender, transsexual diversity and sexual formation, and the, the history of the case law dealing with it, both within and without the, com- the common law, then you really don't do much better than reading uh, the judgment of Richard Chisholm in Re Kevin. Thanks, Rachel. That sounds like a really impressive win. Interesting your experience too of being part of the us but also the other. In the opening, we mentioned we're at Purple Day and LGBTIQ youth. During your career, you've appeared in court for the parents of young people who needed stage one and two hormonal sex affirmation treatment. What were your clients seeking in those cases? I was approached by the parents of a, 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 a young person who was approaching puberty, who, who had always insisted she was female and, uh, and had... Um, gone the gamut of child psychiatry at that time. It certainly less was much less was known then in Australia than now. 
There was a case that occurred in 2004 called Re-Alex, brought by a government department in Victoria seeking the approval of the family court for uh, sex affirmation treatment, stage one and two hormonal treatment for a young person with transsexualism. And in that case, the court decided, purportedly following the High Court's decision in Marion's case, that that treatment, i.e. hormonal sex affirmation treatment, stages one and two, stage one being puberty-blocking treatment to hold back the progression of the, the, the puberty, and phase two treatment or stage two treatment of hormonal treatment to bring on the f- secondary sexual characteristics of the affirmed sex to enable that child to go through adolescence appearing like her or his peers. So what Realix decided and set a precedent for was that such medical treatment was a special was special medical treatment within the meaning of section 67ZC of the Family Court Act and required court approval. The fact was that other children who were labelled intersex who were having precisely the same medical treatment, i.e. puberty blockers and phase 2 hormonal treatment, were having that treatment every day of the week without any court approval at all. So again it seemed to me that we were looking at a a kind of a a legal regime of discrimination based upon uh, a fear of difference. So if these children, if the doctors had said these children were this, that or the other, then there wouldn't have been a problem. The fact was, however, that the, uh, the people in the Netherlands who'd, who'd been carrying out the research were prepared to give evidence of the hundreds of children they'd treated. They hadn't had one case of regret and that they were reliably able to diagnose and treat these children. And, of course, that's, been the, that's now the case in Australia. The, the different trials have proven that because these children don't get treatment unless they demonstrate a very strong and certain view about which sex they are from a very young age, five, six, seven, and then no matter what the world throws at them or what doctors they see or what pressure they have from their parents or their society, insist that that's the sex they are no matter what their body, bodily sex might be and uh, what, to what sex they may have been assigned. So these children are really very easy to, to identify because they are distressed and they are extremely discomforted by having the genitalia of a sex to which they don't experience themselves to belong. And so they, these children stand out as children who require medical treatment. When the parents of this uh, affirmed female child came to see me, we put on an application in the registry of the family court and obtained in 2005, with the help of wonderful medical evidence, really good doctors who at that time were required to stick their neck out professionally to help my clients and their daughter. The judge was prepared to order, on an interim urgent basis, the provision of phase one puberty blocking treatment. Recently, of course, the full court of the family court has determined that um, phase one treatment, which is fully reversible in, in that if you stop the treatment, the body's puberty will progress. So they've decided that uh, you don't need court approval for that now. So we've come a long way, have a, however, question whether the family court should have any say at all in, medical, in, in what medical treatment a young person should receive, no matter whether there's 
conflict or not between parents or between parents and doctors or indeed between parents and child. Removing the uh, cost and stress of going to court uh, where there's no conflict or dispute between the the parents and guardians and and medics and and the child uh, will certainly improve the mental health and well-being of some transgender young people. Recent research shows that transgender people can experience higher levels of stress, mental illness and depression. And you spoke about this earlier. For example, the rates of attempted suicide are 11 times higher than the general population and the rates of anxiety are three times higher. Rachel, how, how can we improve those outcomes? What else do you think would, would make a difference? It's difficult to say, Tim. I think we're talking about the evolution of the culture and the experience of difference per se. I'm hoping that in the future we have much more opportunity to educate lawyers, doctors and the general community about all aspects of people who experience difference in sexual formation, gender expression, all forms of identity, disabilities of different kinds and to share with all those different the expert bodies and the general community, what it's like to experience that. Because not only will that make the lives of people who experience difference easier because they'll be understood, which is what we all seek, to be understood, but it will also make the lives, my proposition is, it will make the lives of the whole community easier because the, the big secret is we all experience difference in one way, shape or form. And if we can find our own understanding and compassion for others, there's a very good chance we might go easier on ourselves. One thing that stood out for me is when I've been acting for the parents of children and schools have adopted a positive attitude to getting education about intersex conditions, about transgender, they will have a child transitioning in their school. So rather than exclude the child, they involve the whole community. Those schools invariably report that the whole school community is absolutely empowered and feels better about itself because of it has gained this capacity to not only accept the reality of the affirmed child's sexual identity and the affirmation of their sex, but because that triggers a whole lot of other acceptances, uh, vulnerabilities in the reality of human of what to be a human being is within the school. It gives everyone a sense of safety and security. So that, that child becomes symbolic of the, of the skill of the school now, of the skill of that community in being able to welcome people in and include people. So, Rachel, what would have made the difference for you as a young person, a young male-bodied person, a teenager, who experienced herself as female? Well, that was back in the... Um, I was born in 1956, so my teenagerhood was in the 60s and, and, and later teenage life in the 70s. I was in Strathfield in Sydney, you know. I was aware of my difference from the time I was about five or six. No one tells you. In those days there was no, there was no, no internet and certainly no knowledge of transgender differences or transsexualism, but... I was, I remember my earliest memories, you start being checked, you start doing things and then the adults in the life or the, you get the message and so playing too much with the girls next door, playing the games with them, 
that was frowned upon. And gradually I got the message that, and I wanted to, I, I, my sister was away at Teachers College and, um, and she ha- had a lot of clothes left around and I was fascinated. I wanted to see myself like that. Uh, I think that's probably the best way I could describe it. I wanted to, to have some expression of me inside and I was already watching women here and men here and I was, my mind was saying, bumping up against this uh, conflict with the way I'd been assigned and what my body was like. It's not surprising then, I guess, that at um, seven years of age or thereabouts my father surprised me. I was sleeping in bed uh, dressed up in some of my sister's clothes. And I'd fallen asleep rather than being able to wake up in time to get out of the clothes and present as Richard the next day. And so many of my people I know who experience transsexualism, transgender, they've been brutalised as punishment. My father was just brokenhearted. And the only thing he could think of to put his mind to it, when he asked me, what are you, why are you doing this? And I said, Dad, I'm really a girl. So I gave him the best answer. That, that I had because I trusted him. In answer to that, he was devastated. So he carted me off. There was a lot of hush-hush. We're an Irish Catholic family. It's not what we do. But I don't get bashed or anything or, or punished, although his sadness and his upset was more punishment than that was the punishment that I really received. And so carted us off to a child psychiatrist who didn't know what this was, who said I was merely that it all be fine, that I was just merely precocious and intelligent and, you know, over-imaginative and, and all of that. And, of course, by that time I knew what the game was and so I clung to that and I went deep underground. Dad thought... that The closest thing Dad saw to all this was um, drag queens he'd seen in the Second World War when he was in New Guinea. He thought they were treated badly. And, and late, it's only later I found out that was his real fear. But uh, anyway, I went deeply underground and by 17 I was captain of the Fords in the second 15 at St Pat's Strathfield and I was I decided I was going to out-success this problem. I was lead singer in a rock group that travelled the western suburbs of Sydney and disturbed parents and, uh, and so at the same time I persuaded my father to, that I could... Um, it'd be a good idea to visit relatives at Yes and down the south coast. And so I worked, I saved up my pennies from working at Christmas and, and all of that and I borrowed his car with P-plates on it in a private place. As soon as I had the car, I had all this clothes and makeup in a bag and I headed off for my first adventure as Rachel at 17 on P-plates. I would then experience huge remorse and guilt. You see, by this time, growing up in a culture that says that this is not this is bad. People like this are bad. They're ill. They're bad. They're wrong. It's not something you can, you've done wrong that you can do something about. You're wrong. And so by the time I went to uni, I thought I was... I just... I had this deep, deep regret, uh, deep, deep guilt. So that, that's why I think it's so good now for young people to see and for people like me to speak out so that young people see there's a future someone with difference and of their particular difference and that uh, we have enough capacity within our Australian community and society to actually make the most of those people and to work with them to enjoy the magic that they bring in their 
diversity and difference. But me, I, I had to, I, most of it was secret. And I married, I married thinking, confessing to my ex, confessing to her that I really experienced myself as female, so I was honest enough. But, but we always, we thought it's just something that um, if Richard works hard enough at it, you know, so a law degree, three kids, a successful legal, pra- a, a legal practice that was moderately successful, a house. I'm following the Harvey Norman Road to Happiness like mad. I'm mainlining success, legal, legal practice success. And, of course, I get to about 34 and I'm using alcohol to do that. And I've, I've already, not that I was diagnosed, but I already had probably a raging anxiety condition because I'd been experiencing anxiety right through. Now I understand that. You don't do everything I did. You don't have all the secrets. You don't have all the double life. You don't do all that. And you're feeling that even though you're building a family, it's all going to drop out from under you. Because you know, there's something you know that fundamentally is wrong about what's going on. And now I'm faced with the fact that too, I'm getting to the point where I just can't keep living unless I can live as a female. Now, that's a horrible position to get to when there's no plan B and you've got three little children you love and you don't want to let them or your spouse down. And so that was a, very, that was a terrible time and my alcohol consumption went through the roof. And so in 1992, I had to admit that I was addicted to alcohol and uh, life was very messy then. Fortunately, I was able to, to get sober. But the only way I could get sober was to actually acknowledge the reality of my female self. I was brought to understand that I couldn't get sober and stay sober unless I got real, unless I removed the need to escape reality. So, Because I, I had to live in reality without an escape through drugs or alcohol for the rest of my life. And so, I mean, this year I think I'm about 27 years sober and 25 years transitioned. So I hope there's a message there. I hope there's a message there for anyone who's troubled, anyone who's feeling less than a superhero in their legal practice. Because the truth was, the reason why I was happily able to achieve all those things that we talked about at the beginning of the session, through Re Kevin and Re Bernadette and the rights campaigning that I've done and, and all of that, is through accepting the worst, what I thought was the absolute worst decision I could possibly make which was to transition so the thing that scared me most I had to tend towards it and embrace it and I think that applies to all of us and even though the world's improved it's not it's far from perfect and there's still discrimination to be found for people of difference in 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 their practices uh, as lawyers but in their lives too and I think that requires you almost to put legal practice in a in perspective And to say, as I had to say, first I'm Rachel. I'm in the world. I have have a life to live. And and one of the things I do in my life is to practice law. I think the message must be, the message must be that we worship perfection at our cost, whether it be within a legal practice or in the community. We're much better to praise and enjoy the beauty that comes out of imperfection because we're all, we all sit in that. In truth, we all sit in that boat. 
And uh, I feel very, very sorry for young uh, people these days, particularly young lawyers, who seem in many cases to be driven by a, an all-consuming desire for success within practice as lawyer, lawyers there are asked to work, in my view, harder than they were under the old article system with less reward. If we're trying to encourage young lawyers to empathise with their clients, to live deeply through their legal practice, to have compassion and be able to cooperate with other lawyers in a polite way, then we need to spend time. We need to spend time encouraging them that it's all right to be themselves, to be as vulnerable and as imperfect and as diverse as they are. Rachel, it's uh, been wonderful to see you. Thank you very much for being a role model. And uh, thank you also for your work as an LGBTIQ legal rights advocate. My pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Yes, Rachel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Changemakers podcast. Until next time.